0: Catherine Cooper of World Connections has a story of tough decisions and advice on not keeping score. Tune in to hear more on last week's episode and you'll find that at letstalksupplychain.com forward slash season two dash episode 43. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain. My name is Sarah Barnes Humphrey and each week I bring you the top supply chain professionals in the industry, you will learn about best practices, new innovation, and most up-to-date information about supply chain. I believe that collaboration is the future of business, and I have designed this show to ensure you have all the information you need to succeed in business and in your supply chain. This episode was produced in collaboration with Border Buddy the most innovative online customs platform out there. And here is what Graham, the founder, has to say.
1: How long does it take you to get a duty rate or guidance on the right HS classification from your current customs broker? With BorderBuddy's new revolutionary self-service technology, you will never go traditional again. We have created a platform that allows you to get instant quotes on duties, taxes, and customs fees to import your products into North America. To get 10% off your first clearance, sign up at borderbuddy.com forward slash Let's Talk Supply Chain.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Let's Talk Supply Chain. So today is literally the last day of 2018, and as I have reflected on this year, it has been one of growth rebranding, and also one of action for me. I have covered so many topics on this show in this last year that I compiled some of the more interesting clips for you in this episode, as well as some advice from our amazing lineup of powerhouse women on my Woman in Supply Chain episodes. So in this episode, you are going to hear about risks, trade, cost, technology, state of the industry, talent shortage, speed of change, data, warehousing, advice, and so much more. So as we wind down 2018, I hope that you enjoy this episode because I combed through all of the episodes to bring you the best. So let's get into the corrupt conduct. Um, If anybody knows your story, they know that you went from a White House offer to prison. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a a big story in between. How did it start with what we might consider to be grand corruption?
2: Sarah, it didn't. Um, So what I find myself in my first few years
3: and... You know, just by way of context, from
2: 1997 to 2007, I was overseas, say, an average of 250 days a year all over the world, and part of that time I was residing in the United Kingdom where the company had operations. But very early on in my work, I am out there meeting with existing third parties and intermediaries and distributors looking to sign up new ones, And I find myself in a place called Tierra del Fuego, which for your listeners in Canada, it's the sort of other part of the earth. It's the southernmost tip of Argentina. Um, It's been called the southernmost habitable city on earth. And I'm meeting with one of my intermediaries and a little bit of a description of this intermediary, I had no indication of corruption or corrupt intent. The sort of things that you might think of as red flags were not evident. This is a person that had a bank account in his name, in his country. I had done some small transactions with him. And Sarah, he was doing all the things that your listeners would like their responsible business partners to do. Identify opportunities, um, introduce me to end users to make technical sales presentations. The type of defense products that I were selling um, were highly complex, so those required very technical presentations, and this distributor, this agent, is introducing me to end users to make those presentations. He's translating documents where necessary, all good things. And I'm there to talk about a large upcoming tender. And I think it was over maybe lunch or dinner as we're talking about this future business opportunity. He says, Richard, um, by the way, as part of my success and my success fee, because as I said before, Sarah, most of these entities are paid on a success fee basis. He said, I'm paying tolls to win the business. Now, I knew right there what he meant by tolls. And in the next 15 years, I'm going to hear some really interesting words to describe a bribe from tolls to making people happy to taking care of people. Um, I read one enforcement action where there were chocolates. Someone else, the people I add to my list now, someone gave me one, they were called sunshine payments. And there's a, um, U.S. corruption case going on right now where the jury's trying to understand what the defendant meant by meatballs, all right? So there are a lot of interesting words used in this uh, particular issue. The one word that I didn't ever hear was bribe. So here it is. He is intertwining corrupt and legitimate business services. He's doing all those responsible things that we talked about, but he's paying tolls when he needs to pay tolls. And Sarah, what I I think, what I remember most about this conversation, besides the fact that Tierra del Fuego is a very interesting place to visit, um, he wasn't asking me for anything. He wasn't saying, look, Richard, I'm I'm paying these tolls and the tolls are going up. We need to renegotiate my commission. He wasn't saying there are a lot of toll takers. I need a bigger marketing allowance. He's just telling me to take a deep breath and relax because this is how we get things done here. And right there, I'm thinking, well, this is only a red flag if I make it one. And I'm certainly not thinking I'm in the earshot of international law enforcement looking out at some Antarctic tundra. So what did I do? I'm saying, look, this is only a problem if I make it one. And I nodded my head. And right there, Sarah, by the knowledge and the promise that a bribe would be paid, even though it had not been paid and even though there was still no guarantee we would win this opportunity, but just by that nod, I violated the law as a co-conspirator for violating the FCPI. Now, I did not go to prison for nodding my head, but there really is a slippery slope when we sometimes think, of our behaviors and how things happen. And for me, this is where my slippery slope began. And I'm going to hear this conversation play itself out in region over region over the next few years.
0: But overhead costs and liability is growing. And digital marketing is also growing in this space. So I think for a lot of them, it's kind of like, where do I invest my money? And what is going to be the best return for me? And investing heavily in technology is great, but it also depends on what they're going to do with that technology and how it's going to better help the shipper and the supply chain and, you know, the international uh, freight forwarding side, the transparency, all of that.
4: Yeah, exactly right. And, and, and to be honest with you, there's, there's, not a, there's still a certain lack of, of knowledge as to where technology is actually going to take you. Uh, but, the, the, you know, in terms of how you're going to use uh, artificial intelligence to, to deliver value to shippers, I mean, I think that the, the, the forwarders and, uh, are, you know, they're, for example, they're beginning to realize that uh, there's certain elements of information that, that, that they can provide that are going to be really very well received by customers if they can achieve it. For example, uh, ETA. Uh, you know ETA right now is uh, is is very antiquated in the in the shipping world. As as you know, I mean, you know, shippers have you know very little uh, bona fide information about when ships are going to arrive, when cargo comes off of ships, when cargo is released from a marine terminal, when it's going to get to the. Uh, to the distribution center when it can be made available to customers, and this is all enormously uh, problematic when you are trying to uh, satisfy satisfy customers. Say that you're delivering to a customer's warehouse. You know you're you're a, you're a consumer products company that is delivering to a Walmart DC. I mean, I mean now you have to be able to provide an accurate ETA, or uh, else or else they're, they're going to penalize you. Uh, but it but it also gets to you know much broader uh, uh, revenue uh, uh, implications regarding regarding you know you know when you're going to be able to make sales or when you're going to be able to put product up up for sale on on a website. Uh, it also gets obviously into into questions around uh, a warehouse uh, labor and when you need that labor. Uh, so the, the the forwarders are beginning to understand that that if they effectively leverage data, they can begin to provide some of that information to the, to the customer. Uh, But the problem is that, that there's that from a forwarding perspective, there's there's actually uh, limitations to the information that you can provide because uh, Marine terminals, as one example, remain a complete black hole when it comes to visibility uh, and availability of cargo. And, and, and there, there is no clear uh, 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 you know, there's, there's no clarity really that about you know, when cargo is unloaded off of ships, when it's being made, made available to drugs to I mean, that's really just you know, very, very early days. So you know, I think we're still in the early days of a lot of this. But the problem is, Sarah, that, that you can't, unless you invest in technology and unless you invest in culture in your company to be able to be innovative and to think about the the possibilities of what technology can accomplish, you're going to get left behind, even if you don't have a clear path to what exactly it is that you're trying to achieve.
5: So what is blockchain? I will tell you, it is exciting. I think the easiest way to explain blockchain is if we break it into two components, because I think there's a lot of myths out there, a lot of confusion out there. So if we break it into two components, the first one being about cryptocurrency, which ultimately is just an exchange of value. And then the second component is about operational efficiency. And I think once you separate those two, you kind of go, aha, uh-huh, okay, let me think about that for a second. So if you look at the exchange of value and operational efficiency, it helps us kind of compartmentalize and start focusing more on about the blockchain technology that's behind it all. And that's what's really the most exciting piece about the whole thing with blockchain. So what blockchain does, it creates a level of trust and transparency based on a consensus system that we've never had before. So if you think about it, right, our banks and associations, they used to be the central point. So whenever you did a transaction, it had to go through all of the different banks in that, that country. Then it'd have to go to another country. If you're going to another country, you'd have to go through that for validation. And it could actually take quite a long time to do things. And then, of course, don't forget, the banks are there to make money. So it'd be heavy transactions transaction fees on top of that. So what blockchain is, is a distributed ledger. So it's not a centralized ledger, which means that all the banking ledgers and company ledgers normally sit inside of a company. That's the centralized one, which means there's like one point of attack to get information. A distributed ledger is a decentralized one which means it resides on thousands and thousands and thousands of computers. You just can't hack that because you don't know where to go and get that information. So it's very, very secure. And so it creates us now this decentralized point of trust because you know the information is in multiple places and people can't get access to it. Now, the identities of people that are doing the transactions are anonymous. So you know where the transactions are coming and going. You, it's a public ledger, so anybody can see it on the system, but it actually makes sure that your information, your personal information is hidden. So, you, But you know the transactions of what whose hand it's passing through. So then you can see all those pieces. Every transaction, once it's recorded, it's recorded. It's permanent. It's a permanent history. It can't be changed. It can't be altered. It's just that you can read it. So the identities and all the information are all encrypted. So this is the exciting part about what I find really fascinating because I'm kind of a cybersecurity kind of nut. (laughs) So I love all these different pieces that the information is immutable, which means you can't actually, you know, hack into it and uh, and you can't change the history of things. But what I love about this encryption is that it makes it very difficult to break into it. They actually have to, um, basically decode a very difficult mathematical calculation. And this is what they call encryption. They cryptographic. That's what they call it. The validation and verification of the transaction. That's what they maintain and verify on the ledger. So when I transfer something from you to I, And you know, and we're sending that in order for the transaction to be validated, someone has to quickly decode this system or transaction because it's so secure, and then validate that it really is something that's legit that makes sense, and then processes the processes the actual transaction. There's no more banks, no more other intermediaries inside of there. It's completely. You know, transparent. You can see exactly everything that's happening. So it's actually liberating because it transfers the process of trust to a collective agreement about around a body of independent computers. So it's peer to peer.
0: What are the biggest risks facing supply chain leaders today? I guess since we're focusing on technology, let's let's focus on on that side.
6: Yeah. Um... That's a great question. So, And I think it's one that probably every, if, there, if people are not wrestling with, they should have it on the top of their like quarterly um, questions that they ask of themselves. Um, so a part of me thinks nothing, that there, that there are risks today that um, people are used to dealing with. And the risks tomorrow will just be different, but they won't be greater or smaller. I mean, part of the job of a supply chain manager is to firefight, to, you know, think of ways to get around some problem that happened in a far-flung location, um, or with a, you know, a third party that you don't have a lot of control over, um, so part of me is like, okay, you know, there's political issues, physical issues, psychological issues about getting stuff from A to B. So it will just be a new set of issues and, and the, the supply chain leaders will adapt to whatever those problems are. Um, but then there's another part of me that thinks, wow, um, there's a lot of, you know, and this gets to what we were just talking about. There's a lot of pretty mundane and pretty rote stuff that people do right now, a lot of data entry, a lot of non-critical thinking kind of stuff. Um, And if there's automation to take that work away, uh, that creates a very different logistics department or supply chain team. Or if you're in trade compliance, it creates a very different look for your trade compliance team. Um, So from my perspective, the big risk is sort of not thinking about what your team will look like in two years and five years. I mean, Five years—it's hard to think beyond that. But you know, how many people will be on it? Uh, how, will your budget be cut? Will your budget be augmented um, if there's fewer people needed? You know, what do those numbers look like? Um, and then, how will you, as a leader, uh, need to interface with like your company's IT resources versus you know your interactions today might be mostly with your logistics team. And then maybe, uh, you know, an executive team that you report into, maybe you're on that executive team. But, you know, I think more and more, especially as tech starts to become more pervasive in logistics, you're going to have to start, as a leader, you're going to have to start thinking about what your interactions with IT resources, both inside and outside the company, look like. More than as much as you do, kind of directing your own internal teams, and you know, part of that is: are you going to outsource more of this to like a plug and play 3PL or a consultant? Um, are you going to or go with like a managed service kind of software arrangement? Um, or are you going to you know, or, or do these technologies help you? Get more proficient internally, but you still need less people. And you know, so, what, is, what does your team look like? And of course, it's not all the same for every company. Um, so, I can't give a prescriptive answer right now for everyone who's listening, but it's a question you, sh- you really need to ask yourself. Like, what is your team now? What will it look like in a year and five years based on where tech is going and how it influences your, your part of the world?
0: So what can they do to diversify? What are the next best alternative markets for U.S. and Canadian importers and exporters?
1: So this is a broad ranging topic, but it's, it's um, the first place that we would suggest starting is by simply either working with your service provider or you know the tariffs all available online, but you can you know work through your tariff your, your your service provider to figure out where would these items be duty free from or sur tax free from um, if I was to import it from another country. So you know the, every tariff item has duty and tax rates from different countries. Now the, a lot of them are grouped together. There's a, you know I don't want to get too technical, but you know there's a GPT rate that covers a whole bunch of countries. And so every item that you import has different duty rates or, or not. Some, some are duty-free across the board, or some have 5% from Vietnam, you know, 6% from China, 0% from Mexico. Uh, so that the tariff itself can be lower or higher duty rates from different countries. So that's the first thing we suggest is always look at. Forget about the trade war for a minute. If you're paying any sort of duty or surtax, you want to always be looking at where could you source this to reduce that amount. That's, that's the number one thing that, that big importers do is they're always looking to source where they can get the lowest duty or tax rate. So that, that's basically, that's where you would start. And then exporting wise, same thing. You would, you would look at what countries or don't have barriers. For my products and and you know if you went back 10, 15, 20 years even this was hard to do but now it's actually quite easy to do and with all the international shipping companies like you know FedEx, UPS, DHL, Purulator, shipping worldwide is not what it used to be it's so easy it's just you, you click and pick a different country and all the pricing is included and and so it's not as difficult to ship internationally as some people might think it it would be or could be.
0: Yeah, so I think it's all about taking a look at trade agreements, taking a look at the other trade agreements. I mean, NAFTA is spoken about a lot, um, obviously, because it's easier. You know, to do trade between Canada and the US, Canada and Mexico, US and Mexico, we're, we're all so close, we're all neighbors. Um, and that was, you know, obviously the point of NAFTA being created. But there are a lot of really good trade agreements that Canada, especially Canada, has with the rest of the world. I think optimizing supply chain is, is maybe a step back um, from that supply chain gain and then the, the, um, what we're talking about as far as blockchain. But I think that that's a really important place to start.
7: Sure. So you, to understand the real problem, you have to actually step back and re- realize that we are at this point in history where we are reinventing the entire knowledge base of the world uh, every year and a half or so. And and that pace is still increasing. And so the the pace of change is, is just exploding. And it's happening at the same time that the, that the that the number of choices are also increasing and um, and what, what happens and the social science on this is just really fascinating. If if you give people three choices to which, you know, they do not have the answer um, better than 70% will pick an answer. But if you give people um, seven choices of something to which they don't have the answer, less than 30% will pick an answer. And so when faced with more choices, and that's kind of the world we're moving into is things changing so fast and more choices coming at us, we freeze. Absolutely. And, and this is, I think, at the core. The other thing that's happening is that the cost of change is, it, it, it keeps in, increasing. So you have a, if, if you have a disruptive change that you have to adapt your supply chain to every year and a half or so, and the ROI to uh, of implementing something to react to that change is a year. Well, you you haven't paid off your investment in making the change by the time you put the change in place because it takes time to implement. And then you're on to doing the next one. And these things start stacking up on top of one another, and that curve in major corporations is now starting to go uh, and And so you just can't. So both the the human psychology of, of change is against you and the financing of the change is against you. And so you just cannot keep up and can't keep things
8: optimized.
0: Yeah, which we're seeing a lot of. And I think what you referenced in that video also is that because it keeps everything stagnant, everything is staying mediocre.
7: Correct. Because that's the only choice you can pick. So what you have to do is go after low-hanging fruit. And by definition, low-hanging fruit means quick wins. And by definition, quick wins means something you can implement very quickly, but not necessarily something which would be systemic change. And then what happens is that new organizations that are starting up, many times who don't have these legacy issues and can kind of re-envision how stuff gets done come out of nowhere and just wipe wipe things out. So look at Amazon. I mean, what, what, what it's done to supply chain is it moved into the supply chain space. It didn't have these, you know, this history. It didn't have all this legacy stuff. It could reimagine doing things differently and it had an understanding of technology. And so it could do something totally radically and it's completely wiping out entire industry segments as a result of its positioning.
0: And I think also what you're trying to say there too and something that I really, you know, it's kind of my tagline. Collaboration is the future of business. So it's really, we've gone past that phase of pointing the finger and saying, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. You know, we're taking a much better, in my mind, look um, at each other to say, hey, I have some of this data or I have you know, this is what's going on for us. What can we provide to you to help you help
9: us? Exactly. And I mean, collaboration is, I think, key. And it's not just externally, but internally, right? So how can the marketing teams collaborate with the logistics team to also be able to, you know, achieve results? And what we're seeing there more and more is, 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 is collaboration. So, you know, in, in the past when there's, you know, there's so much money that's being spent to be able to acquire a customer for the first time. And then when you lose them, you always blame the marketing team, you know, that they did something wrong or it was a problem with the, with the product. But what was never really considered was how the logistics team played a role in that. And what we're seeing more is the logistics team collaborating with the marketing team to figure out if there is exceptions or maybe there was a packaging experience that, that was tainted. So using all that information to really collaborate is, is so important.
0: Now, let's go back to talent. Um, It's a big conversation right now. It's a big, you know, topic of conversation. And I think that there's a few ways of of looking at this. So what are your thoughts on the talent shortage?
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, you've been around the industry for a while as well. And, you know, I remember I've been here for a long time, 27 years now. And I remember sort of the olden days. I was thinking about this you know, the olden days where you would sort of, you know, post a job ad, you get hundreds of applications and you had your pick, you know, it was just a, it was, it was a employer's market basically. And, you know, that has completely changed. So we really think about our talent pool as a sales funnel. You know, we, we want to target our ideal candidates. Um, and once we meet with them, it's, it's not, we don't take it for granted. It's a full sales presentation on how they can have an impact by working with us, um, we have to talk about how they are going to benefit by working with us. Um, you know, it, it's it's a it's totally changed uh, over the last decade or so, and and you know the great companies have been doing this for a long time. But you can no longer just post an ad and and hope that people apply. It's really you have to go and get talent. And you know we we've had we've been really lucky. We've had great people join us. You know we've had people from multi billion dollar public companies join us because they know that they can, you know, it's a smaller, leaner organization and they can have a huge dent, a huge, huge mark in our company. Um, so we really like to try to play offense with, with talent. Um, you can't sit back and wait for them to come to you because really great, like great talent has options. They have a lot of options. They can work in a lot of places and we need to figure out, you know, why would they want to work with us? And, and we have to show them that. So, It's a completely different process than it was 10 years ago. And uh, it's actually quite fun because we're looking at these, um, you know, we're looking at these as prospects.
0: Yeah. So I think another way and and something that we can sort of discuss right now and another way of, of looking at it is, you know, maybe it's not just a talent shortage. Maybe it's also a mismanagement of talent. Um, maybe we've got some talent that is already in our companies, um, doing maybe even some jobs that they've done for a very long time. Um, but we need to look at it, at a, it uh, from a different perspective. Um, you know, what are their talents? What are they good at? And can we take them and put them in a different role within the companies? Because, again, with everything changing, um, the roles are changing. So a lot of people are saying, you know, um, admin jobs are going to go to robots, which is fine, but you can't take creativity and strategy, uh, from robots. Um, and so there's new roles in strategic thinking and creativity that are being, um, you know, taken a look at and started at companies, new roles, where you can take some of the talent that you already have, take a look at what they're good at, and maybe put them in different roles so that you maximize the capacity of who you have working for you.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, because today we have roles that we didn't have even you know, two years ago or five years ago. So the talent requirements are different. But there's also a piece here that I think is important for any business owner. You know, If you look at what's going on in retail, and in some case in hospitality like restaurants, the people that are dying and the people that are hurting are the people that have either poor or mediocre experiences. So, uh, you know, if you walk into a store and you're not sort of wowed, you're, you're, it's a problem, right? And, and because you're used to going into an Apple store or something and it's just amazing. And so if you're, if you're an older company that hasn't changed, you've got challenges. Same with restaurants. You always hear about restaurants closing. Well, it's not, you know, the restaurants that close are usually it's a poor experience or a mediocre experience. And so then you go to your company. If you're just offering a mediocre, bland experience for uh, for employees or for people, you're going to have problems. You need to be thinking differently and you need to be understanding, like to your point, what do these people need? What do they want? What is their... What is their goal in five years for themselves? How do they see their career? And then and then ideally, you know, give that to them so that they don't have to look elsewhere and, and move on or, or you know move out.
0: Yeah, that's a great point because again, I don't think a lot of people um, you know correlate the talent shortage with maybe the company culture. So maybe, you know, before even hiring more people or talking about even talent shortage, it's not only just taking a look at who you have internally, but it's also about how you provide a culture of uh, so people can thrive um, and people can love what they do and love working for the company. And And I think that that is also another huge part of that talent shortage. Let's get to that efficiency point, actually, that you made. So how can a company sort of measure how efficient their warehouse is?
8: Yeah, well, there's some traditional measures for that. But I'm going to go back to, uh, again, I think uh, because of service levels, order accuracy is going to be one of the primary measures um, that we have of how well we're doing out there. Getting that 99.5% or higher um, accuracy rate is really important. Um, but while you're doing that, in order to get efficiency, you got to make sure, you know, the measures are going to be pick rates, especially um, as uh, a very important thing. Um, and that should be compared. You know, it's funny. I, I say this, and then I'll tell you why it's kind of dumb. But you should compare to industry averages because the numbers, and we see this in, in our own business here, the numbers that you get for pick rates are all over the board, depending on what your center looks like, what industry you're in, uh, and obviously the work that you have to do out there. Um, so uh, pick rates is just uh, one, one way um, to, to figure out if you're being efficient um, in providing a very high accuracy level. Uh, and that's going to actually turn into on-time shipments off your um, shipping dock and hopefully onto the receiving dock or the you know front door of your customer, whichever one it is. Out there. So there's traditional, um, methods uh, of looking, um, at efficiency. Um, there's one that a lot of people don't talk about specifically, but I'm going to tell you it's space utilization. Um, and actually we can look into the future in some sense by looking at what goes on in, in Europe where space is really tight and they're uh, focusing much, much more on not only technology, but also um, the use of cubic capacity of a building. In the most efficient way to house whatever product it is they need to store. So here in the US, we're not, we have a little bit more freedom in terms of the space that's required. Uh, but making really good use of that space, uh, is going to become, uh, far more, uh, more important and could be a way of measuring our efficiency. And, and so just to go a little further on that space one, because most people might not talk about that. All they say to us is we're out of space. Actually, most of the time, people aren't out of space. They're out of locations. So um, there's a way to measure that, and it has nothing to do with the cubic capacity of a building. You know, if you just measure the four walls and the ceiling and the floor and, and figure that out, that's not it. What it really is is the cubic capacity of the locations, the slots, the bays, whatever your storage media is um, in your building. That's the thing that should be measured. Uh, And the reason I say that is because what we find is, uh, in many instances, there's a mismatch between the items that are put in certain locations and those locations' capacities themselves, where it becomes pretty easy to waste space inside of the product locations in your building. So I think that one should, uh, at some point, be added to the list of measures of efficiency as, once again, space gets tighter and tighter here in the U.S., Again, the leading indicator being what's going on in Europe, where it's already tight.
0: Why do you think that uh, demand and supply chain planning are so important to maximize the end to end supply chain?
10: Yeah, sure. Look, there's a lot of um, a lot of change happening at the moment. Uh, we're living in this fast, interconnected world, and if we think about you know what actually is demand and supply chain planning. I always use the analogy of a, of the sa- sa- satellite navigation, the GPS system in your car. You know, if you're a company, your, your manufacturing and your distribution operations, they're the engine room. They're the engine in your car. But the demand and supply chain planning solution, yeah, they're the sat nav. Yeah, the demand system is telling you, this is the best possible picture of future sales. This is where you want to go. This is your destination. And the supply planning component, it says, well, if that's where we want to go, this is all the activities we need to do to get there. This is what we need to make, move by. This is when we've got to do it within the constraints of what you're able to do and in the most optimal manner. And because things are changing so fast at the moment, you know, in, in this day and age, we have access to unprecedented levels of, of data. You know, end-to-end planning is, is so important you know, to synchronize you know, all of the business operations. You know, we need to ensure that we don't just synchronize within ourselves, that our sales department's to our distribution, logistics, manufacturing and procurement are all in sync. We actually have to synchronize ourselves to the greater supply chain. So we don't have operational silos working independently, not necessarily sensitive to the, to the requirements and to the greater strategic objective of the enterprise. A, a, another analogy I like to use is like an orchestra without a conductor. If you could imagine each instrument being played absolutely impeccably perfect to the music. However, totally out of sync with the other pieces of the orchestra, and this is why I say that end-to-end planning, end-to-end synchronization across the supply chain is so crucial uh, in this day and age.
0: How are stores changing?
10: Yeah, I think I think you nailed it. You know, they, they're basically
1: turning into distribution centers or pick and pack operations. You know, or cross docks It's it's actually amazing when you go into a store now. Um, you know, the, they're. They have employees walking around picking items, which sounds crazy. It sounds, I shouldn't say it sounds crazy. It sounds, before they used to take the items from their back warehouse and put it on the shelf, and the consumer would take it off and put it in their cart and, dr- and walk to the till. Now, because of pickup and delivery, so a lot of, gro- a lot of grocery stores, retail stores are offering in store pickup or even delivery, and they're using their stores as warehouses. Uh, or or dis- distribution centers. So you walk into a grocery store here in Vancouver, where there's a lot of online delivery, a lot of online and, and grocery delivery. The people are walking around with carts and baskets, pulling stuff off of the shelves that they just put on, and are doing a pick and pack. It doesn't even go through the till; it goes out another warehouse door, and then they are they have sort of a dedicated pickup zone, or because um, you can also do pickup, not just online delivery. Um, so the whole store is changing. It's changing into just what you said. It's changing into a logistics operation where they have to figure out how to pick and pack, store, and, and have ca- cars show up and open their trunk and pop the groceries in.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple of examples. So I was talking to a friend of mine, and uh, she was on her way home from work. And she just, she was telling, she got out of the car, she was still talking to me, but she got out of the car and, you know, she was talking to somebody just sort of saying thank you, whatever. And I said, what are you doing? (laughs) And she's like, well, I went to pick up my online order. I order, I found this um, company out of the UK that has amazing clothes and I can't get them for that kind of price here. And she's like, I order from them all the time. So I, but I don't want them to deliver to my house because I'm never home. I'm at work. So I get them to deliver to this local depot and it's right down the street from work. And I pick it up on my way from work, on my way home from work pretty much every single week.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, the um, there's whole foods is doing something similar where for groceries, which I think is genius is they have dedicated parking areas that are covered. They're covered parking areas. You pull in like an old, almost like an old uh, member of the drive-ins, like an A and W drive-in or a drive-in restaurant where you drive in and the, the bar, the hop would come over and take your order and deliver it. Well, you can literally drive in and whole foods, pop your trunk and someone, someone comes in. And delivers your groceries to your trunk and you don't even get out of your car. And Walmart just, just, uh, announced in Canada that they're redesigning a whole bunch of stores in Canada for this very reason. They're going to have dedicated parking areas for pickup and also they're going to have dedicated areas inside their store. So if you're doing online orders or online pickup or online returns, you don't have to go through the normal channel because it's a completely different model, right? You, you can't show up with a till with a box that says this is the wrong size t-shirt or this was the wrong size television or whatever you ordered on Walmart, you need to be in a separate area that's dealing with this whole separate system. So their stores are becoming multifaceted, not just for people that are walking in and, and using the traditional way. They're becoming, you know, warehouse and distribution centers.
0: So why is it such a challenge then for companies to find a way for systems to work together?
11: The the really hard part is not actually the technology. If you put a couple smart IT people together, they can figure out how to get the ones and zeros and a bill of lading from one system to another. The people part of it and the project management is extremely difficult, and it takes a lot of discipline, and it's a very different mental approach than a company has if their job is to move freight. Uh, which is a very transactional kind of sequence thing, uh, kind of herding the cats of all of these trading partners and their software providers, and sometimes even a third tier of software providers. That's what makes it really hard, right? And and being disciplined to take the meeting minutes, have the calls, uh, do all of the collaboration kind of pieces that are human, is really the thing that I think is where most companies fall apart when it comes to integration. Uh you know they they let the the status calls kind of peel off or they're not reporting back to executives properly and projects lose a lot of momentum and they take a lot longer. Um to me that's really the fundamental thing. And then you know, the tech is, is, it's hard. And, and, you know, we've done a lot of things to make ourselves faster using the cloud and serverless and microservices and all these buzzwords that aren't even, aren't even our industry's buzzwords. There's a whole nother set of cloud buzzwords that we use. But, um, you know, that stuff is really secondary to, to having the people process down.
0: When you think about supply chain, what are the three biggest challenges facing supply chain professionals today?
12: Well, I think first and foremost, the biggest is, is the speed of change. And, the, and change has always been a part of organizations. And for a very long time, supply chains were seen as a cost of, uh, cost center. It's a cost of doing business. I have to have it in order to uh, service my customers, regardless of the industry that I, that I serve. But, but today the supply chain is really that secret competitive weapon. And the supply chains that are tuned to best meet customers' needs offer advantage in the marketplace that are difficult for companies to, to copy or to deliver. You know, for example, you could change prices pretty easily or you could change your assortments fairly easily or, or you could change your ingredient mixture of a product or those things. But changing your supply chain and being forward-thinking enough so that that supply chain is a competitive weapon is very difficult and is not an overnight task. So I, so the rate of change has put an, an intense amount of pressure on supply chains. I think, secondly, it's that the supply chains are expected to do more with less, and they're expected to do it faster and cheaper. And a lot of different uh, pressures by organizations that are helping industries understand the possible, the art of the possible, are really applying pressure to the supply chains to do what they were not initially designed to do. And so they really need to be done differently. And then finally, it's it's the whole challenge of positioning the supply chain so it's prepared for the unknown. How do I accomplish things that I don't know are going to happen and how do I make sure that I can accommodate for disruptions in supply or changes in demand that were not expected? I think those are three big challenges facing supply chain organizations, regardless of industries. So the
7: cost is really I'm sorry to cut you off there, sir. But um, the cost is extinction. The, the cost is that your business won't actually survive because um, you can you can do these kind of incremental changes and go for the long hanging fruit on things for a while. But we're getting to a point where where um, the ability your ability to kind of eke out of uh, an existence becomes harder and harder and harder to do that because you end up with suboptimal long term results in in favor of short term benefit that that uh, are these a stack of band aids at the top of it. And and then eventually what happens is you cannot compete with some new startup or some new entrant in your market and and you, you become extinct.
0: So that concludes the first part of this episode. And I want to let you know who you heard from because you'll be able to go and check out these episodes on the podcast page at letstalksupplychain.com. So you heard from Eric at JOC in episode 24, Graham of Border Buddy in episode 23, 29, 36, Scott at Sweetbridge in episode 26, Hannah and Jory of Intelligent Audit in episode 28, Dan of Optricity in episode 32, Sean of Genesis in episode 33, Brian of Chain.io in episode 38, Kevin of JDA in episode 40, Julian Sapna in episode 15, Peter of JOC in episode 12, and finally, last but not least, Richard Bystrong in episode five. And remember, if you'd like to hear more of these episodes, go and check them out on the podcast page at letstalksupplychainnetwork.com. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the second part of this episode, and that is to highlight some of the women in my supply chain series. They gave us so much great advice. They were authentic about their journey to success. We talked about everything from where they started how they got to where they are, and what they are doing now. So you will hear from Irina Roska, the supply chain queen herself, Sherry Hanish, Lori Benson about diversity, Ashley Dechek; Ellen Voix, president of Woman in Trucking, Sheila Benny, and Kelly Saunders. You might need a paper and pen for this one because they are giving us some great advice, not only for Women in Supply Chain, but supply chain professionals in general. And they even give us advice for the new entrants coming into our industry. So check it out and hope you enjoy. So then um, it takes me into my next point, right? Because we, we talk about women in leadership roles, but we they've got to start somewhere. Um, we've got to talk about hiring and promoting women. Um, women, I was just actually listening or actually reading Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. And I love, I love, love, love the book. It It's very thought-provoking. It, it showed me a few different things that maybe I've done in my career that I didn't really think much of. And you're right, you know, women take risks a lot differently um, and they also handle promotion and uh, getting hired a lot differently, negotiation, et cetera, et cetera. So what should HR and organizations consider when hiring and promoting women?
13: Well, I'm glad you asked that because we, I'm always on the lookout for good speakers for our conference. We just wrapped up our third women in trucking conference and we had over 500 registered people about 90% are women but there's men as well but over the last couple of years some of our speakers have included Sarah Lashover who wrote a book called Women Don't Ask and she talks about negotiation skills negotiation is more uncomfortable for women because we're more collaborative where men look at negotiating as hey this is fun this is a game let's see what I can you know get that you know out of this other person Um, But for women, it's more like, no, we want everyone to win. You know, we want everyone to be happy when we walk away from the table. But that hurts us in our careers because we're not asking for promotions. We're not asking for raises. We're not asking for um, benefits when we have come to a new job. The average female engineer, when she graduates college, accepts the first position where her male counterparts negotiate and start out $6,000 higher which is about a half a million dollars over the course of their careers. So we need to be asking. We need to ask. We need to raise our hand, or as as Sheryl Sandberg says, we need to lean in. Other things that we need to look for, especially as HR professionals, we need to set a level playing field. And by doing that, I mean don't ask someone what they made. Because it, it, women typically earn less than men, so if a if a job is worth eighty three thousand dollars and a woman applies and she's come from maybe a sixty two thousand um, dollar career, where a male applies and he's come in at from uh, seventy nine, that shouldn't matter. What matters is what the job is worth, what the you know the capabilities that are needed are worth to the company. So we need to stop asking for what the salary was in the past. And that will make it a little bit more level. But the other thing we need to look for is HR people have to be careful that they don't look at what women have accomplished and what men are capable of. Because research has shown that a lot of times they'll say, but what has she done? Where for men, they'll say, wow, just think of what he could do for this company. And that that way of thinking right there puts women in a spot where you have to prove yourself already, where the guy is like, wow, you know, they're, they're looking at him as this is what he could bring to the company, but they're actually measuring the woman in a different way. And one other thing that HR people need to look out for is uh, when women are vocal and speak up, they're perceived in a negative way where men are vocal and speak up. They're seen as leaders So, that's a double standard that both men and women have um, when when interacting with other women, especially leaders. So, we need to be careful of that.
14: Women multitask extremely well. And I see that 90% of my team are female. And again, I, I don't do that, I haven't hired women specifically because of gender. I hire the best of the best. And we take a long time bringing people into our organization because it's about our culture more than it is about people's experience from the past. And so I think companies benefit from having women and millennials because it's another diverse view on how business can be run. You know, we talk about millennials being the risk takers. We also talk about how... Women can see things differently than how men can see things differently. And, you know, traditionally we've had a very male dominated industry where when we start to bring this other opinion and other skill set in, it allows an organization's bottom line to increase. You know, I think also you mean statistically, there is information that says that a organization that has females in its C-suite and senior management are financially more sound. So you have to question why wouldn't a company want that mix? Why wouldn't they want women in a senior management role if financially it's going to benefit them?
3: I think the main piece of advice is, is our industry is so dynamic and it's changing every day. And so it's really about keeping your skill sets relevant. And so depending on where you are in your career, that that might mean something different, but it's ensuring that you understand technology and you are attending conferences, you're reading and really staying in the know because the industry is just changing too fast for people to really rest on their laurels um, and not continue to educate.
15: Number 1 piece of advice is learn. Learn as as much as you can, as fast as you can and fail. Absolutely fail. Fail often, try new things, explore, and when you do fail, fail fast and fail forward. And don't forget to wear killer shoes (laughs) and get up quick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, seriously. I, I mean, I've learned so much from when things didn't go as I hoped or expected. And it's hard to tell someone that, right? When you're in the thick of it, it's awful. It's awful. But growth happens in the dark. Oftentimes it's necessary. And you have to keep going and it's not the smartest or the strongest person who comes out on top consistently. It's always the person with grit, the person who's resilient and the person who can navigate change. So if you're going to do something right, do it, you know, put your heart into it, try your best. All of it matters and keep going. Even when you think I can't possibly show up the next day. I would say supply chain is a
16: ever changing field. So keep studying. Um keep keep reading. Like I'll give you an example. Yesterday I went to a conference um, that was a marketing and sales conference for um Amazon retailers. Um, so whether or, or or Amazon sellers or or vendors. So whether you are a vendor central or a seller central Um, seller on Amazon. That's really what it was for, but it was very marketing and sales driven. So it really had nothing to do with supply chain. But I attended the the entire conference because for me, as a supply chain leader, I need to know what sales and marketing are thinking of and how they're thinking about that and what strategically um, they're planning so that I can speak to my team in a way so I can translate those plans in a way that supply chain understands. Um I think the in my opinion that has been one of the things that have helped me the most and I attend I attend webinars I attend events um where these types of topics are not in any way relate I did not hear supply chain logistics planning inventory at all yesterday but what I did hear were marketing dollars ad dollars AMS spend um you know promotions all of you know those types of things which are again in no way directly related to supply chain But we are the business unit that has to support that success. Um, So I strongly believe that to become a successful leader in supply chain, you must immerse yourself in all other facets of business. And you have to understand and listen and read other portions and plans of the business.
17: Well... I would say that the most important thing as being uh you know new into supply chain uh, and procurement is that it'll change. Things things are always going to change. Um and and you're the change makers. You're the ones that can push it forward and pull it forward, right? So when we talk about how can you move Uh, you know, procurement to the next level and supply chain to the next level and be able to understand how you're going to undertake that um you know the change in our environment and and our work and you know it's really about the speed of change it's it's about how much are you really thinking about that change and how are you going to be able to deliver that message right so um you know we we have core competencies in procurement you know we all need to understand you know basic general uh goods and and services and law and you know Negotiation and processes and fairness and, you know, and, and just, you know, understanding the value of our suppliers and whether or not they're, you know, going to be long term suppliers. How do we build a good partnership? How do we build, you know, joint ventures and alliances, et cetera, et cetera? One of the things that newer folks that are coming into the procurement Practice is to really elevate that. So it's not just about your practice. It's not just about being procurement. It's about so much more. It's about anticipating. It's not... Um, just that one piece or that one element that you might be able to bring it's about all of those other things like you know here's an idea that I have that might actually help you know bring and more value to what we're, what it is that we're trying to get out on the market or maybe it'll help diversify because this is a need in that market that we're not addressing or here's a different way we could do something you know I mean I, I remember having a conversation with an individual about their um, product. And uh, and I said, well, what are you going to do about bringing stuff into the warehouse when, you know, there might be a retail storefront where you're just going to, you know, have three or four colors and maybe a few different sizes or something. And then people could pick from that, but you're actually just going to print it with a 4D printer in the background. Like, you know, procurement, are you thinking about that? Are you thinking about how is it going to change? How How are these things going to change? Because what exists today, if you give it two to three years, It'll be completely different, you know. And, and when I started my career in supply chain, um, yeah, I mean, we we moved and shaked and we changed the world. We brought procurement to a different level within our organizations. Now it's up to the new generation to now think about how do you create that agility? How do you create that value in the organization? It isn't just about a cost benefit. It's about so, so much more. And, and you know, and I think that the new practitioners in procurement really do need to take that and and grab it and and really utilize that to change uh, the practice of procurement and supply chain.
3: Oh, goodness. Um, Let me think. What do I wish I had known? Sometimes I think it's good as a younger person to not Always know, because <laughs> then maybe we'd be a little too afraid to keep plowing forward. Um, but seriously, if, if I had known earlier on not to doubt myself quite as much, um, I think that would have been helpful. So I think, uh, you know, I would encourage younger people, uh, just in general, um, Learn earlier to have a little more confidence. And maybe today's generation, you know, a lot of them I see, they do have confidence. I think the exposure to knowledge um, in a very rapid, uh, format uh, gives them more confidence you can you can access information very rapidly so when I was coming along um, you had to you had to absorb knowledge in different ways you had to gr- you had to grow your experience base differently um, so maybe that isn't as much of an issue for younger people today they seem to build their confidence levels uh, at a faster pace for me if I had, realized that I was technically more astute at an earlier age, I think that would have helped me. I, I think that I didn't understand that soon enough. And and honestly, I I am. I am a competent, technically astute leader. Who is ready for challenges maybe a little earlier than than I give myself credit for? And and maybe that has to do with being a woman. And I think as women, especially in my generation, we need to come to grips with the fact that we are in a position where we're ready to take on challenges perhaps a little bit sooner than we give ourselves credit for.
0: So those are just some of the golden nuggets we heard from our guests in 2018. I hope you enjoyed the the show as much as I enjoyed producing it. And I will work even harder in 2019 to bring you new vendors, new innovators, powerhouse women, and new hot topics. Plus, stay tuned as I launch my Woman in Supply Chain blog series so that I can recognize more women in the industry. And I will be launching a new video series about business and supply chain. I cannot thank each and every one of you enough for listening, sending me your reviews, your questions, connecting with me, sharing the show with others, and just being there and being a great audience so thank you thank you thank you thank you i wish you all nothing but the best in 2019 and as i finish all the episodes just remember everybody ship happens